Let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We'll read all of that, though, as your bulletin indicates, we'll focus on the first five verses in, in verse 14. But I want you to hear the story of Jesus tonight. Uh, we turn our attention this evening, uh, not so much where we did last week, to the humanity, the full humanity of Christ, but tonight to the full divinity of Christ. Uh, Christmas is an occasion for much rejoicing and feasting and celebrating, and God gives us many wonderful good gifts, and I hope that you have a delightful time wherever you are. Uh, it's an occasion for Christians to rejoice, to rejoice that Jesus is God become man, that he is like us, that he understands us, that he gets what it is to be human, just like us. But Christmas is also also an occasion for worship, worshiping Jesus, because he is unlike us. According to the scripture, he is God, God in the flesh. And so... We want to consider that from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let me invite you to hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. That was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for speaking, that you have spoken to us in your Son, and you speak to us in your Word and about your Son. Help us to know him, help us to see him as he truly is, grant us faith to believe and to rest and find joy and peace, grace and truth in him, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What comes into your mind when you think about God is arguably the most important thing about you. What you think God is. 
If you don't think much about him at all, you must think it is safe to ignore him. If you, however, find yourself feeling perpetually feeling bad and, and guilty when you consider him, maybe you only think he is out to get you. And there's no grace. But there is. But some people think God is just the next stage of human development after death. We go on to something next, something new. And if that's the case, then you don't think very highly of God himself at all, but you do think more highly of yourself than you should. But if you see that Jesus is God in the flesh, then you see that in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. And then you see that God is full of grace and full of truth. And let that intrigue you. Let that draw you to him, to be interested in him, to hear about him. John doesn't begin his gospel where Matthew and Luke begin theirs. They tell you about the birth narratives as we read. They tell you about who his parents were and where he was born and what it was like for him as a baby. John doesn't tell you about that. John's gospel tells you about Jesus from the perspective of the supernatural or from God's perspective, so to speak. From the top down. And and in this text, we have one of the most clear, direct, explicit statements about the divinity of Jesus Christ. So that there would be no mistaking, no misunderstanding. The Apostle Paul doesn't want you to be confused about what God thinks of Jesus. About what the Bible thinks about Jesus. About what Christianity teaches about Jesus. And that's so important, friends, that you understand that. You, You see Jesus rightly. It's so important for your conscience so that you can be free to actually bow in worship and praise and to appeal to him for help with a clear conscience and not just say to yourself, well, Christmas is an amazing time. It's wonderful, isn't it, that there was a baby one day long ago and he was in the manger or, or, or say to yourself, well, you know, Jesus, he, he must have been a great spiritual leader. He was evidently really close to God. I could really learn a lot from him about what I need to do to be close to God. Oh, no, friends, this will free you from thinking that Jesus is just a guide to your life so that you can go down the right path as he leads you. But rather, this frees you, friends. To recognize that you can bow at his feet and call him my Lord and my God. And find grace and truth and help for your life from him. Do you remember, some of you would, that the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote in the final book called The Last Battle. It's children's literature. It's wonderful children's literature. When Tyrion... And the Lord Diggory are in the middle of this stable. And there's an astonishing statement that the inside of the stable was bigger than the outside. Do you remember what Lucy says? She says, in our world too, a stable once held something in it bigger than the whole world. A stable once held something bigger than the whole world. That is what you have here in John chapter 1. He's telling you that God has come down to dwell 
with us in Jesus. And it is meant to bring you to wonder and awe, reverence and joy and delight as you catch a glimpse of Jesus. The infinite who became finite. The eternal one who entered time. The invisible one who became visible. So let me invite you to consider six things about Jesus from John's gospel tonight. He tells you at least, and probably more, but let's focus on these six in the, in the first place. Go all the way back to verse 1 where he says, In the beginning was the Word. John tells you about the pre-existence of the Word of God. And this Word is personal. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. He's speaking of Jesus. And so he tells you that Jesus here had no beginning. He predates the beginning. John, I think, is very deliberately reminding you of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where the the whole Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning, he predates the atoms and the, the, the light, and whether it's waves or phases or whatever light is, he predates the stars and the planets, he predates DNA, he predates humanity, he predates everything that is. He is before all things. There never was a time when he was not. Was here, in the beginning, was the word. It's an imperfect verb tense. It's a form of the, the, the verb to be. It's not the present tense is. It's, it's, it's not that he became. It's that he was. It describes a continuous existence. There was, John says, never a time when he began. He has always been. That's the first thing he tells you. And then he not only tells you about the pre-existence of this word who became flesh, but he tells you about the coexistence of the word with God. Notice the language. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, was what? Was with God, he says. John's using a, a tiny little preposition that, that can mean with or it can mean towards. Uh, it, can, it can very readily be translated face to face. It's the idea that there was God and the word was towards God and with God and face to face with God. There was, in a sense, this this fellowship, this eternal relationship and communion of God and the Word and the Word and God, the Father and His Son and the Son in the bosom of His Father, loving one another, encircling one another, delighting in one another before anything else came to be. That's what He's saying. The Father and the Word are two distinct persons face to face. He's distinct from the Father. He was with God. He's distinguishable from the Father. Uh, He is distinct yet distinguishable. Jesus will say things in the Gospels like, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now in saying that, Jesus is, is helping you understand, I am not the Father. I can speak of Father being in me and me in the Father, but I am not identical to the Father, not in every way. And yet he will say, I and the Father are one. And he who has seen me has seen the Father. I reveal the Father. The Father, he is saying, has always been with God. God has always been with the Son, the Word. 
and the word became flesh. And so you're getting a glimpse here of two of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right here at the beginning of this gospel. Friends, this will help you understand. We don't say that the Father came to do the will of the Son, but Jesus will say that he came to do the will of the Father. It's not the Father who became incarnate, lived on this earth, and died on a cross. It is God the Son who became incarnate and lived and died on a cross. The Word was made flesh. And so you, you see him saying that, that the Word was coexistent with God. But just so you don't misunderstand, he turns around and he says, what? End of verse 1, and the Word was God. He, he says the Word was with God and the Word was God. He himself He is saying, the apostle is saying, he was fully God, not less than God in any way. He's not a minor deity. He's not a created thing. He's not a created angel. He's not inferior to the Father, but he's fully God. And there is a massive confusion in the world today about who Jesus is. And John doesn't want you to misunderstand. And I want to say this, most wrong views about Jesus try to make him to be something far simpler and easier to understand than he actually is. That's not surprising when you consider the claims of the Bible that Jesus is fully God and fully man, two, di- two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in one person, and he is the Son of God in a fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's complicated. It will blow your mind. There is nothing in this world analogous to it. You can't come up with an illustration that perfectly explains what the Trinity is like. And so it's easier in some ways to say, well, that's too confusing. He's something much simpler than that. And and, and every wrong view of Jesus amounts to that. It it tries to reduce Jesus to a very understandable thing. But, But John's word here will not let you do that. These are difficult words. For us to fully understand, to explain even, to, it's not hard to grasp the language he's using to describe, but the things he's describing are hard to understand. And I just want you to see that most heresies reduce God to something easily explained. And so what does he say about Jesus here? He says he was in the beginning and he was with God and he was God. He is saying there is no inferiority in the word to God the Father. He's saying that though centuries later, these people called the Arians in the 4th century came along and they said, well, no, 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 no. Christ is a being inferior to God, but superior to man. Christ is some middle being in between God and man. John is saying, no, the word was God. And like them today, there are modern day Arians. They're Jehovah's Witnesses. Their view of Jesus is essentially identical. There's nothing new under the sun. You'll find among Jehovah's Witnesses, in their, their translation of the Bible, called the New World Translation, in order to support the view that they hold of Jesus, that he's not truly God, they will translate it this way. 
The word was with God and the word was a God. Not the God, not God, but a God. And by that they mean some smaller sort of demigod or, or in the pantheon of gods. But the problem with that is that is not what John says. It's not grammatically or contextually correct to translate it that way. John says Jesus was God. And it doesn't say that he became God. It says he was God. And this is against the modern day teaching of Mormonism, friends. They teach that man became God. And so can you. That is not what John says here. He, he God, became man, is what he says. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. He added to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. That's what John is saying here, and this is against the idea of Unitarianism, where there is only one person who is God. The idea that Jesus isn't God, there's only one person in the Godhead, God the Father. Um, The idea that there is one, only one, eternal and divine being who is a unity, hence Unitarianism, a unity, not just in his essence, but in his personhood. Not just in what he is, in his being, in, in, in whatever it is that makes God God. Not just that there's one God in that sense, but that there's one person in that one God, God the Father. And this passage is telling you that's not the case. The word was with God and the word was God. And Jesus, the Son of God, is distinguishable from God the Father. And this passage is reminding you, friends, that this is not modalism. This is not... This is not a variety of modes or ways of one God in one person putting on three different masks at different times and in a way like an actor putting on a different face, showing you at one time that he's the father and at another time he's the son and at another time he's the Holy Spirit. This is not... What John is saying about Jesus here, he's saying he's God. And so you're seeing here two persons of the three-personed trinity, that there is one God, one nature, one essence, one being that is God, yet three persons in the Godhead, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and these three persons are one in eternity, one in power and glory equal in power and glory, and yet of one essence. One person in that trinity is not greater than the other two. And yet in this trinity, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The three persons are distinct from one another, even as they share the same exact nature and essence. There is nothing like it on earth. There is no analogy or illustration you have ever heard, whether it was with eggs or trees or water in various states, that properly, rightly describes the Trinity. Any illustration you have heard will in some way either overplay the one against the three or overplay the three against the one or not properly describe how something can be one in essence and three in person. And yet this is what the Bible teaches. It's a great big mystery 
And if you thought I've been repeating my language again and again, it's because there's not a whole lot more we could say about what the Trinity is. It's far easier to say what the Trinity is not than to say what the Trinity is. The great Augustine once said, we speak in order not to remain silent. In other words, we have to say something against all the wrong ideas out there. But it's hard to say a whole lot. Because God is so great. God is so huge. Now, I'm not going to work out 400 years of early church history here tonight. I know some of you thought I just did. We, we don't have time. It took the church 400 years to settle on what, what seems obvious to us in a sense that Jesus was a real human being in a real body and he had real arms, he had a real head, he had real feelings and emotions and desires and a will. He was a real human being and yet he was also really and truly God and he was both in one person. Uh, in the council of Nicaea in the year 325, the council pronounced that Christ as the Son of God was the same, and they used the word substance, the same substance with the Father. But now, as soon as you use the word substance, you and I think of like material stuff. We think of the substance of our bodies, and of course God is immaterial, and he doesn't have substance in that way. And so what they meant was whatever the essence of deity is, the Father is that, the Son is that, and the Holy Spirit is that. And so he is true man and he's true God. And in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, they declared that this Jesus is one divine human person in two natures. And these two natures have come together in such a way that they have not mixed. You don't have a divine nature and a human nature mixing and becoming some third kind of thing. And yet they are not separated from one another. They are united to one another without division and without separation and without confusion and without mixture. And don't look at my hands. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to illustrate what, what that means. It'll make your head hurt, friends. But maybe we should close with this idea on this point. A God small enough to be completely understood by you would not be a God large enough to be worthy of your worship. And so the Bible says he is preexistent. He, he is coexistent with God. He is God. In the fourth place, he is the creator. Notice the language here at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see what the Bible is saying here. Creation was the work of God the Son, no less than of God the Father. That as Colossians 1 puts it, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In other words, if, if uh, you have a clear statement here that Jesus is the creator of all things, and if not the slightest thing was created without him, then nothing was created without him, and therefore he himself cannot be a created thing. He made all things, it says, of all the things that have been made, he made them all. He's not one of the things that has been made. 
He's the creator here. He did it. My kids and I were talking this this morning or afternoon, and one of them mentioned that if evolution was true, uh, a mother would have more than two arms and two hands. (laughs) At least by now, wouldn't you think? No, friends, you are what you are by the creation of God. He brought this entire world into existence and everything in it. You are what you are because Jesus made you. If he made you, you belong to him. And then fifthly, he is the source of life. Notice here, in him was life. And the life was the light of man. He is the fountain from which the river of life flows. He has this life in himself inherently. It wasn't given to him. It is his innately. He's the source of it all. So he can say to you, I am the way and the truth and the life. So that he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. And if any man believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Why? Because I'm the life. Anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Because I am the life. Jesus is life. Whatever physical life you have, you have received from him. And whatever spiritual life you ever hope to get, you must receive from him as a gift. A free gift of his grace. Because he's the source. And then finally you see in the last place, in the sixth place, you see that he became man. Verse 14, he incarnated, he enfleshed. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so you see when he incarnated, friends, he didn't lay aside his divinity But he added to himself humanity without ceasing that divinity. The the old theologians put it this way. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. What was he? He was divine. Yet he became what he was not. Fully human. We sang of this, friends, in Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You remember singing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead See, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, our God with us. Veiled in flesh, he says. Wesley's getting at the idea that even as he added to himself humanity and lived a true human life, his glory, the glory of his divine nature was often, more often than not, Veiled to the eyes of his disciples. So on the mountain of transfiguration, it becomes unveiled. And they see the splendor of his glory and he's blinding in it. But ordinarily, sinful human beings were not allowed to see the full glory of God on display in Christ. Not the majesty of it. They would have been destroyed By the blazing light and heat of his infinite greatness, friends. To see God with an unveiled face, without a mediator between you and God. To see God in all your fallenness and his unfallenness. Even the unfallen sinless angels cover their eyes in heaven before the face of God. And so he added to himself humanity and it was often veiled. The divinity was often veiled. And and so he became like us to live with us, among us. Verse 14 says that he 
he dwelt among us. He, the word is tabernacled among us. It's picking up the language of the Old Testament and, and God's tabernacling in the midst of his people. God living, literally, in a tent at one point. In the tent of meeting, in the midst of his people. And what's the tent of meeting for? What's its purpose? It's so that a holy God and sinful man can get together and have fellowship and be reunited and have friendship. And so that we, on our side, can be reassured he'll forgive us and welcome us and love us and have us. It's a safe place to meet God if you're a sinner. That was what the tabernacle was. Likewise, Jesus is where God and man meet. He is where heaven and earth meet. And it is safe to meet God in him. Why did he have to take on our flesh? Why did he have to become human to do that? So that he could suffer and die the death that we deserve for our sins. So that we could be pardoned from our sin. Released from the judgment we deserve for our sins. He had to be human And step into our place upon the cross. Why did he do that? To heal us, friends. To make us well and whole. With a resurrected body and a soul made perfect forever in the presence of God. To be truly human the way we were designed to be. Now why did he have to be God to do that? He had to be God to do that to sustain. Listen to this answer given from the... Westminster Larger Catechism, you can ask me about that afterwards. There's a question asked. Why was it required that the mediator should be God? Here's the answer. It was required that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from shrinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. To give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession. And so satisfy God's justice and procure his favor and purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. And that is a mouthful, friends. He did it so that you and I could experience full salvation with God and a reunion of living with God. So the great thing about Christmas, this Christmas, to put it in crass commercial terms, is not the deal you got on Good Friday. It's not shopping so that you can get more for less with no money down. Buy now, pay later. No, no, no. What's glorious about Christmas, the great thing about Christmas, is that you can get everything God has to offer you with no money down, no money due, no payments owned, because the Father has given you the gift of his own Son, and all things are in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you that you are the most generous giver there is, that you are abundant, and that you spared not your own son, that we might have eternal life. I pray that you would help us to believe in Jesus, to look to Jesus, to save us, forgive us, rescue us, and to take us where you are, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.